His images represent a journey through space and time. They transport us to alien, glowing worlds on the edges of the universe, while still reminding us of what it means to be human. Today, I'm having a conversation with astrophotographer Hap Griffin. Hello and welcome to Photo 365. My name is Andrew Hayworth. My great-grandmother, Vivian, lived to see Halley's Comet twice in her lifetime. Born in 1899, she was only 10 years old when the comet made its 1910 approach. Growing up, she captivated me with tales of how the comet was bright enough to be visible through windows just before dawn, and how the sight of it was so terrifying she would sneak past the windows and run down the hallway to avoid catching a glimpse of it. Like her, I was 10 years old when I saw Halley's Comet. In 1986, just after dusk, a group of local amateur astronomers held a star party in rural South Carolina. On that night, I recall looking into a reflector telescope and seeing Jupiter and its moons for the first time. The astronomers, using flashlights, pointed out constellations such as the Pleiades, Orion, and Cassiopeia. Then it was time for the big moment. Through a large pair of binoculars, I caught my one and only glimpse of Halley's Comet. I recall it looked a lot like the images from 1910, a fuzzy snowball suspended in space with a trailing tail. I don't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday, but I'll never forget that night. I grew up fantasizing about space. As a kid, one of my favorite books was a slim, random house children's book from the 1970s simply titled The Astronauts. When I learned how to read, I obtained a copy of National Geographic's atlas titled Our Universe. This was a giant hardcover volume that featured beautiful artwork covering everything from the Egyptian sun god Ra to the outer planets and beyond. I devoured books about space and astronomy into my teenaged years. I read Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke, Carl Sagan, and Stephen J. Hawking. I pondered the meaning of Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Naturally, my parents encouraged this. They took me to planetariums, science museums, and bought me a decent refractor telescope I used to observe Saturn, Jupiter, and the Moon. At one point, I sent off for a space camp application. I even had a Casio Cosmophase watch. Its LCD display showed the positions of the planets on any given date. I proudly wore this computerized horological wonder until I graduated high school. But, like so many dreams, astronomy and space exploration would fall by the wayside. It wasn't because I lost interest, but rather, I was simply a terrible student, especially in math. All sciences, but especially astronomy, rely on math and physics, and I barely passed basic algebra. Liftoff aborted. I mention all this because I want to contextualize just how much I'm inspired by today's guest, astrophotographer Hap Griffin. Hap is a true Renaissance man who never gave up on his dreams of the cosmos. I've been a fan of his images for more than a decade now, but Hap isn't just a photographer. He's an electrical engineer, a musician, an artist, amateur astronomer, 
and above all, an educator who shares his knowledge and love of science with children and adults. Digital technology and software revolutionized astrophotography. As photographers adopted early digital SLRs to image the night sky, Hap became frustrated by the inability of cameras to see certain wavelengths of light, so he developed a modification process to address the problem. That turned into a side business appropriately named Imaging Infinity, and to date he's modified thousands of cameras for clients, cementing his legacy in the astrophotography world and earning him the 2012 Clyde Tombaugh Memorial Award for Innovation in Astronomy. Hap retired as Vice President of Engineering for South Carolina Educational Television in 2012, where he oversaw broadcast technology for 11 TV stations, 8 radio stations, and a multi-channel digital satellite network. He's still with the station as a consultant and project manager. He's a contributor to Sky and Telescope magazine and a regular speaker at astronomy conferences. He's a longtime member of the Midlands Astronomy Club and one of the founders of the Mac Hunter Observation Site in Bethune, South Carolina. Oh, and he photographs rocket launches at Cape Kennedy from the launch pad. His photography was recently selected for inclusion in a time capsule destined for the surface of the moon where it will survive from millennia. Hap, it's such a pleasure to be talking with you today. Welcome to the show. Right, glad to be here. Well, let's start right at the beginning. Where did you grow up, and how did you develop such a love for space and astronomy? Well, I'm, I grew up right here in Sumter, South Carolina. I, I, I've been a, interested in astronomy since basically day one. Uh, both of my parents uh, worked, and my grandmother uh, stayed at the house a lot and basically raised me and my younger brother uh, for the first few years. She, uh, although she didn't know a lot about astronomy, she always took me out on the front porch and showed me the stars and the moon, and uh, I really enjoyed that. I mean, I was like two years old at the time, and she actually said said that my first word was moon. So uh, <laughs> I've been uh, interested in astronomy ever since, and as soon as I could learn how to read, I, I was at the library every time I could get a chance reading everything I could find on on astronomy, and of course. Back in the 60s when, when I grew up was uh, when we were going to the moon, we, the Apollo space program, the Gemini space program. Those were just terribly impressive for a kid that's uh, interested in science and astronomy and, all, and basically all things space. Right. My parents let me stay home from school every time that there was a rocket launch uh, on TV. And uh, so I followed all of them all the way through the 60s and, and 70s and and uh, that's that's where I really, you know, really just got totally hooked on astronomy. And you were interested in other sciences as well. In fact, you majored in electrical engineering. Yeah, I was. Uh, that's another one of my uh, early loves is uh, electronics. Uh, as a kid, I was uh, always into building uh, radios and working on radios, and I even, you know, fixed TVs for my neighbors and everything <laughs> when I was like 10 or 12 years old. I worked on that stuff in my bedroom, but once I uh, smoked up the house one too many times with uh, <laughs> soldering smoke and with things that burnt up, uh, they decided to build me a workshop in the backyard where I could uh, put all that stuff and not have it inside the house. Right. So I was very fortunate to have parents that— uh, that uh, helped me along with uh, with my interests and built built me a workshop and all that. So it it was it was a great uh, 
great, uh, great childhood. When you were growing up, when did you start getting serious about uh, astronomy itself? Was that something you were doing along and along, or how did that come about? Well, I had I had been borrowing telescopes, you know, all through my teen years and and even in the twenties. I, I had friends who had telescopes that really didn't use them very right. much, and so I would borrow their scopes and uh, you know look at the planets and uh, and any deep sky objects that I could see. Of course, in a small cheap telescope that's sort of an iffy proposition sure but by the time that i turned 40 uh, i decided okay i'm gonna get serious about this thing and and i bought my first serious astronomical telescope and joined the uh, midlands astronomy club in columbia and uh, totally blew me away that uh, here here were people that understood what i was talking about and and that were as enthusiastic about it as i was and so it's it's been a great thing being a member of that club absolutely at what point did you start thinking about taking photos of the night sky did you grow up taking photos did you enjoy photography when you were younger well i had always been into photography a little bit and i'd done some astronomy uh, astronomical photography just working with uh, uh cameras and tripods and things like that but uh once I got into uh, into astronomy heavily and got a, a telescope that was worth anything, uh, the next step was to hook a camera to it. Right. And uh, I quickly found out that uh, it's a lot harder than it looks. <laughs> yeah. There is a very steep learning curve, and uh, I didn't have the right equipment at the time, the wrong, wrong type of mount for one thing. So it took the next several years of building a, you know, a, purchasing and putting together equipment and uh, getting to where I was able to get some successful uh, deep sky shots. And uh, it just went from there. Now, it's my understanding that when you're setting up a telescope for this type of deep sky photography, that the setup process is very tedious and precise, and you end up breaking it down and setting it back up again. Obviously, one of your goals was to create an observatory of some sort, and you did. I really wanted to have something something where I could permanently set up and align the equipment and have it ready to go when I was ready to go and just roll a roof back on a shed or a small building and uh, turn things on and be ready already aligned and ready to go. So I had been looking for like the corner of a farmer's cornfield or something like that that I could lease and build a little small uh, observatory. There's a, there's a place on the internet called Astromart which is basically eBay for astronomical equipment. Right. I was looking through there one day, and I, found, I saw this ad that said, uh, free land for your observatory. And I thought, well, what is this? And you know, I said, it's got to be out in California someplace or something like that. And turns out it was only about 45 minutes up the road from where I live. Hmm. And so I called and, and met the uh, gentleman that, uh, that owned the property. Uh, his name was Gene Hunter. And uh, went up there and met him. Turns out that he was an astronomer who had a lot of the same interests that I did. We almost had the same equipment. So we started talking about uh, building an observatory on his property uh, up there near Bethune, South Carolina, which is in one of the darker areas of the state. We decided rather than building two observatories, we'd build one that was big enough to house both of our equipment. And over the next few months, we did that. Then... As uh, members of the astronomy club came up for uh, to visit, they wanted to do the same thing, and so he uh, donated the land, and we ended up with several more observatories there. And then finally, we decided that uh, you know, hey, uh, we need to incorporate and uh, 
Gene donated the land to the, the group. So we, we now jointly own the land up there uh, where we are, and we have five roll-off roof observatories and nine of us uh, members. And uh, it's, it's just a great, uh, great time to be up there on a weekend and have everybody there. And we cook out and we uh, sit out on the deck and play guitar and uh, we eat mm. and uh, observe uh, satellites going over while the cameras in the observatories are, are taking pictures. You know, I've had the pleasure to, to have visited out there a few times, and, and it's a really amazing site. It's uh, one of the few places I can think of in South Carolina where we can really uh, get that dark, dark sky, which is so crucial to astrophotography. And in terms of photographing the night sky, uh, prior to digital technology, we had to worry about things like reciprocity failure in film, uh, hypersensitizing the film in, in various ways. But digital technology really changed all that. But there was a little bit of a problem in that it wasn't able, some of these new digital cameras weren't able to see all of the spectrum that you would like to see as an astrophotographer. So you developed a solution to that. How did that come about? Back after I had... Uh uh, going through trying to image with film back in the film days, uh, and I bought my first DSLR, which was a Canon 10D back in, I guess, 2002 or so. I found out that uh, the first image that I took from it was far better than I could have ever had done with films. So, <laughs> right. And it was a lot quicker, too, uh, in terms of uh, gathering photons. So uh, I gave away all my film stuff, and, and, uh, and I was stuck on uh, DSLRs from then on. But then it became apparent that uh, DSLRs have a filter in them that uh, uh, fits over the sensor. Turns out the sensor is extremely, uh, well, it's sensitive to a wide band of uh, spectrum, all the way from ultraviolet down through the visible range and down into uh, infrared. Hmm. And so the camera manufacturers tend to put a filter in front of that sensor that, that blocks out the extreme ends of the spectrum so that what gets to the filter is basically the same as what your eye sees mm. so that when you take a snapshot or whatever that uh, that it looks like what what you remember that scene as looking like right so it blocks out infrared and it blocks out the uh, the ultraviolet unfortunately one of the colors that that is extremely important in astrophotography is a very deep red color uh, that is is uh, given off by hydrogen gas that is glowing. And since you know ninety percent of the universe is hydrogen, we're missing out on a lot of the deep red color in a lot of the uh, emission nebula, the deep deep ob deep sky objects. Mm. And the only way to capture that with a DSLR, since they're nearly blind to it right out of the box is to go in and modify the camera where you replace that internal filter with one that has a, uh, a modified spectral response so that it can actually pass that uh, deep red color that, that a stock camera is almost blind to. Interesting. So anyway, I started back in 2003 modifying my own camera, and then the word got around, and I modified a few more for locals and uh, had some people that— uh, on some of the various internet chat groups that uh, wanted me to modify theirs. So I put together a website so I didn't have to keep sending the same email out over and over again. And it just, it just exploded. <laughs> and since 2003, I have modified over 3,500 cameras. So they're, they're all over the world. 
Yeah, if you search for your name, of course, you find a lot of people talking about your camera modifications, and it's almost as if you've you've become a folk hero of sorts in the astrophotography world by providing this very important service. And speaking of imaging, I would love to hear about your process, about how you get your fantastic images. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, you're you're dealing with objects that are millions of light years away. I mean, they, and the light has been traveling literally for millions of years. And it's what I call just on this side of black, mm-hmm. uh, just barely there uh, in many cases. And uh, in a lot of cases, even if you could look, you know, put an eyepiece in the telescope and look through it, you can hardly see a lot of the things that I photograph because the light is so dim. So we have to be using long camera exposures to be able to soak up these photons and create an image from light that is almost not there. And that's one of the things that fascinates me is to be able to pull, pull details out of something like that. Right. But uh, so we're looking at, uh, at long exposures, which means that obviously the, the telescope and the mount have to be tracking this guy extremely accurately. If you're shooting with a one shot color camera, like a DSLR, uh, and some CCD cameras are uh, one-shot color as well. You, you're basically capturing all of the colors at one time. Uh, but it turns out that the way that that is done in the camera is that each pixel has a different color filter over that pixel. You have a one row of pixels. You might have red, green, red, green, red, green. And then the next row, you would have uh, green, blue, green, blue, green, blue. And the downside of that is that obviously only red, green, or blue light is going to hit any one pixel. And so the camera has to interpolate from the pixels around it what the, say, for instance, if it's under a red pixel, if we're looking at a, at a uh, pixel, pixel in the sensor that's under a red filter, then it has to guess what the green and the blue levels of light would be based on what's around it. So there's a whole lot of estimated data in a single shot color camera Mm -hmm. and the effective resolution is less because now you're having to gather information from the pixels surrounding the pixel that you're talking about right a better solution for astrophotography and to get the ultimate resolution is to have a monochrome sensor uh, that has no filters over the pixels they're they're all in use for all colors all the time and then you put a single pixel a single filter either a red, green, or blue, or some specialized filter over the entire matrix and shoot entire pictures in single colors. And then, and those are at full resolution of the sensor. Then you go into software and combine them into a red, green, blue, full color image. And essentially you're taking multiple exposures and stacking those exposures to create your final image. Is, is that correct? It turns out, again, we're looking at light that is so dim that it's coming in picks, uh, photon by photon, actually. Mm. And if you look at the, uh, if, if you really dive in and look closely at an individual image, say an individual 10-minute exposure, you think, you know, if you're shooting daylight, 10 minutes is immensely long, but it's right. really not <laughs> when you're shooting something that is so dark. Right. And if you look really close at the image, what you'll find is that the, not all pixels are lit up at the same time. I mean, you have these individual photons that come in and form sort of a spotty pattern. Then if you shoot another 10-minute exposure, what you'll find is that 
other pixels will pick up photons. And so if you combine 10 or 20 or 30 of these images together, then things fill in and uh, all of the pixels are lit and you get a much smoother image by combining and averaging uh, a number of exposures versus just a single exposure. Now, I think a lot of photographers are familiar with the concept of, of noise in images, particularly as you start working in low light situations, as you um, increase the gain or increase your ISO on a camera, you generally increase noise. Uh, you have a very unique way of dealing with noise and these very long exposures. Yeah, there's always noise in any electronics. I mean, anything that's above absolute zero uh, has noise. And so uh, you cool the camera down because the colder the, the sensor is, the less electrical noise it introduces into the image. Mm. Um, that's one of the disadvantages of DSLRs is that they're, you know, they're at the mercy of the ambient temperature. Right. So if you can cool the camera down, uh, it, it works better. And so, uh, I have, uh, these cameras, uh, operating at, uh, you know, 20 and 30 degrees below zero. Oh, wow. And, uh, and so the noise is fairly low, but the noise is there. Mm -hmm. So what you, what you can do to minimize the noise is you take a picture of the noise. Basically you take what's called dark frames which is in essence putting a cap over the lens or over the telescope and shooting for the same uh, length of time as your uh, image frames are. Uh, so if you're taking 10 minute exposures, you'll be taking a series of 10 minute dark frames as well, dark exposures that where everything is the same, the, the, the ISO, the uh, temperature, the uh, exposure time is the same as your image frames, except that you're not letting in any light so that anything that shows up in the picture is noise that the camera itself is introducing. And in most cases, that's what they call pattern noise. And it, it's somewhat um, the same from frame to frame uh, because you have things called hot pixels, the different responses of, of the different pixels in the array. And so you can go through in your processing and subtract out those dark frames, and it basically subtracts out most of the noise. So essentially, you've created a, a noise profile that you can use to, to clean up an image. So let's say you're imaging the Andromeda galaxy. That's kind of one of my favorites. How many exposures does it take to get an image that you're happy with there? Well, it turns out that... Uh, the the amount of noise in an image goes down by the square of the number of frames that you average together. So um, what you'll find is that there's a point of diminishing returns. If you take two pictures, uh, then you have uh, the square root of two less noise, or 1.414. Uh, if you take four pictures, you have twice as less noise, the square root of four. And if you go to, you know, to eight and 16 and 32 and that kind of thing, what you find is that it takes more and more frames to take out less and less noise. Hmm. So you get to a point of no return somewhere around 16 to 20 frames is what I usually shoot for. And so if, um, if I'm shooting an object, uh, I'm usually, I've standardized on 10 minute exposures. I've got a, uh, a camera that can, that won't overload at 10 minutes, even on bright stars. All your detail is, is in the luminance frames. In other words, the black and white portion of a picture. Uh, your eyes are not as detailed in color receptors as they are in black and white uh, uh, brightness receptors. So you 
really put a lot of your concentration in uh, something called the luminance frames, which is basically just the brightness parts of an image. So I'll take maybe 16 or 20 10-minute exposures. So oh, wow. if you think about it, 18 10-minute exposures is uh, three hours. Wow. Uh, so it, that's, that's three hours worth of exposure there. Then I go back and take usually six 10-minute exposures in each of red, green, and blue. So there's another three hours. Mm -hmm. And so just at the basic, I'm looking at six hours of exposures. And then if I want to add in some of the specialized filters like hydrogen alpha or oxygen three or something like that, then, you know, there's that on top of that. So you're looking at, uh, I shoot one image per night. Generally is all you have time for because it rises in the east and sets in the west, whatever object that you're uh, shooting and you track it the entire time. You get anywhere from six to uh, eight or nine hours uh, on a single object per night. And if that's still not enough, I can come back and shoot another night and sometimes a third or even fourth night on the same object and align it perfectly and it overlays. And so I can end up with, uh, you know, 20 or 30 hours on, the, on a single object. Well, you know, as terrestrial photographers, we're accustomed to, you know, very, very short exposures um, compared to, to astronomical photography. But I think it's important that people know when they see these very bright, vibrant images, like, for instance, take uh, one of your images of the Horsehead Nebula. It's, it's very bright and vibrant and colorful. But in reality, these objects in space are extremely dim. There, there's not a lot of light emanating from them. That's right. For instance, the, you talk about the horse head. The horse head is a uh, famous dust cloud that is in the shape of a horse's head. Actually, it looks more like a seahorse to me. But it's against a background that of glowing hydrogen, uh, red glowing hydrogen, deep red glowing hydrogen. And uh, so you have this dark foreground object, which is basically dark dust right. in, in front of this curtain of hydrogen, glowing hydrogen gas. And it's, it's a beautiful object. And you can just barely, even in some of the larger telescopes that I've seen, some of the 20-inch telescopes, uh, on a dark night, once your eyes are, are, are adapted to the dark, you really can just barely see it. It's, uh, you're basically looking for place, a place where you don't see anything else, <laughs> and that's, right. the, that's the horse head. But if you can soak up all those photons over several hours, then yeah, you can make a, a dynamite image. And, and that's what's really there. I mean, you're not, we're not adding anything that's not there. We're just bringing it out of the, uh, bringing up the contrast and, and showing the details and things that are exceedingly dim. One of the things that has always struck me is that these objects are relatively large in the sky. Uh, for instance, Andromeda is a really large object, and we can just barely see it. So it's not always about magnification so much as it is about uh, light-gathering capability. A lot of the things that we shoot deep sky, and what I say deep sky, I mean anything outside of our solar system, um, which is, which is ironic. The things that are closest to us, the planets, mm -hmm. are tiny. Right. And they, 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 they are very tiny against the background sky. And you need uh, specialized uh, long focal length telescopes and things to really photograph those. And that's not my uh, cup of tea, really. I, I, I go more for the deep sky objects that are outside our solar system uh, and even outside of our own galaxy. And, but it turns out that 
they're a lot larger in the sky than most people think. They think when you're shooting through a telescope that you're using a huge amount of magnification, kind of like a microscope. Mm -hmm. But that's not really the case. For instance, the Andromeda galaxy that you're talking about is three degrees wide. That's six times the width of the full moon or the sun. The sun and the full moon are each a half a degree wide. So if you had the, had eyeballs the size of dinner plates, uh, you could probably see it. But your eyes with the little tiny pupil that you have really can't um, gather that number of photons. Uh, it's it, They're not sensitive enough to see it in real time. And so all you get to see of Andromeda with your naked eye is just the core. But if you can soak up the photons that, that are coming in uh, over time with a camera, then you get to see the full extent of it and all the details in it. These objects, you know, if we were able to jump in a starship and fly to one of these galaxies or, or, or nebula, would they look that dim up close as they are as we see them in the night sky? I, for the most part, yes. I mean, you think about how dim the, the uh, Andromeda galaxy is. Well, we live inside of its sister galaxy, right. and our Milky Way galaxy is almost a, a, an identical twin. Mm -hmm. And um, you have to be in a dark uh, area to be able to see the Milky Way at night, and we're living inside of it. Yes. So we're seeing the Milky Way uh, from from an inside vantage point, and it's not that bright. Uh, it's 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 a combination of when you see the Milky Way across the sky at night, it looks like a cloud, but uh, it's, it's actually a combination of 400 billion stars, and each of these stars is a sun. You know, the magnitudes uh, of what we're talking about here, about how far this light travels and how long it takes to get here, is mind-blowing. And so astrophotography images are, are really a, a compilation of time, uh, very long exposures that create these, these very intense images. Speaking of time... Um, and a lot of people don't realize this, but when we're looking at deep sky objects, we're seeing them as they existed when the light left those objects. And say, for instance, if we're looking at the Andromeda galaxy, that's 2.5 million light years away. So we're seeing it as it existed 2.5 million years ago. We're seeing a snapshot in time when that uh, light left that galaxy. And most of the galaxies that I photograph are anywhere from, say, 30 to 60 million light years away. And so we're, we're looking way back in time. Even uh, uh, when we look at things like quasars that are billions of light years away, we're looking at objects where oh, wow. the light left them even before the Earth even existed. And so that just fascinates the, the heck out of me. <laughs> and, and matter of fact, one of the, a lot of people ask me, what's the farthest thing you've ever photographed? And it turns out that, that, that it, it's, it's a quasar. Uh, matter of fact, I've started shooting quasars lately and looking for them. And uh, these are objects that existed in the very early universe. We don't see any, near us, uh, any nearer than about 2 billion light years. So that means they don't exist anymore. There's none that, that existed after about 2 billion years ago. And what they are is um, supermassive black holes at the center of galaxies that are basically eating an entire galaxy and putting off huge amounts of, of energy and light. And we're able to see them basically clear across the universe. Um, uh, they're so bright. And um, up until, uh, I guess, a few weeks ago, the, the furthest object that I had ever photographed was about 4 billion light years away. 
Um, but then recently I've, I've been able to shoot an object um, that was a quasar that's 8.5 billion light years away. Think about this. The universe is only 13.8 year, billion years old. So this object, the light has been traveling for more than half of the universe's lifetime. And this one is really cool because there's an intervening galaxy in front of it between us and it that's too dim to see. And it, it causes the light to refract into two different images. So what we're seeing is two images, two quasars that look like a star, basically. But they're side by side. It's the same object that has been what they call gravitationally lensed. And what's even cooler is that the light path of one image is 1.4 years longer than the other image. So we're seeing two images of the same object separated in time by about 14 months, 14 or 15 months. And uh, as it would be like looking at a person with his twin uh, side by side, uh, but at different points in their lifetime. And so it, it just, you know, it's, it's mind blowing to think that we, we really have at our hands a, a real time machine here with a telescope. You know, I, I get chills hearing you describe that. And I, I know the few times I've been out shooting under the stars, and I'll preface this by saying I'm not a religious person, but when I'm shooting the stars, I feel some sort of spiritual connection to something there. Uh, do you have that feeling of wonderment when, when you're making these images in your observatory? Being out under the night sky and seeing these things and, and actually knowing what I'm seeing. Uh, a lot of people see stars and they don't really realize what they are and where they are and how distant they are. Um, and, and they don't get that, uh, that feeling of awe that, uh, that someone who has studied the subject and really knows what, what they're seeing is. And when I see, when I, like I say, when I see these objects appearing on my computer screen, um, uh, and they really appear once you do the processing later at home. Um, it, it, it just, you know, I can sit here and almost have tears in my eyes. Uh, it's, it's such a, a moving experience. You know, uh, art is an emotional experience. And, and I feel like what you do is artistic, but I also know that you do a lot of science. And in the, in the astrophotography community, is there a push and pull when it comes to art versus science in image making? There is. It turns out the, the objects that we shoot are extremely dim. And so by necessity, we have to do things like stretching the contrast in Photoshop uh, and various processing programs, possibly enhancing the color and things like that. Now, the, the philosophy that we use is that we don't ever want to add anything to the photograph that's not there originally. Mm -hmm. We just want to enhance what's there, bringing it up out of the noise, uh, bringing up, bring it up out of the darkness, but never, ever fake a picture, so right. to speak. And so that's sort of the, the philosophy that I use when I'm process, processing my deep sky objects. Now, on the other hand, things like photographing asteroids and trying to do some real science on them that uh, is, where we might want to photograph them over a period of time and plot their light curves, the brightness changes over time to be able to figure out how fast they're rotating, that kind of thing, where you're doing actual science. You don't want to adulterate the data at all. You want to use uh, 
the raw data right out of the camera to measure an object's brightness and things like that so that when you if you tried to start pulling contrast on things like that then basically you're destroying the the ability to do real science on it so there's you need to decide uh, for the project that you're working on whether this is going to be a science project or a beautiful pictures project. For sure. Um, you know, I can't help but think that we're in such a great place right now. Uh, photographically, we have so many different types of technology that we can use to image the night sky. And, you know, cameras have, have never been better. And um, it, it's really amazing the type of quality that, that folks like you are getting. I, you know, I look back at some of the books. I've got a whole collection of astronomy books and everything. And back when I used to read astronomy books in, in high school and, and even in, in grade school and look at these pictures from these huge observatories around the world, I'm doing much better work now than, than they did even 30 years ago. Right. You look at pictures from professional observatories from back in the, the 70s and 80s, and with my home, you know, with my own observatory, I'm doing uh, deeper, uh, more detailed work than they were doing back then with these huge observatories. So yeah. things have really come a long way. And, you know, in any artistic discipline, we're always looking at an artist's style. So as astrophotographers, we all sort of have the same view of these objects. So. I mean, I can look at your work and say, that's a Hap Griffin photo. I can pick it out of other astrophotographers. How do you develop your personal style uh, when you're doing this type of work that can look so similar to work that other folks are doing? A lot of people, when they first get started, they, they tend to over-process. And you'll see things where the contrast is just stretched almost to an ugly degree. Uh, in, in some folks, and, and as they, they get more experience, they tend to, to back down on that a little bit and try to get more of a realistic uh, image, and that's, that's where I'm at. Uh, I know that some of my first stuff, I look back on it, and I kind of wince on, on what I was publishing <laughs> at the time years ago, but uh, I try to make as, uh, as natural a looking uh, object as, as possible something that you might see with your naked eye, you know, if, if you were, if you were there, so to speak. So, uh, yeah, it's just a matter of, uh, getting a, a workflow down and pretty much following it almost every time. So a lot of my pictures do have a similar type of look to them. And, uh, I'm, I'm kind of proud of that. The fact that you say you can recognize them. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, you can, um, I'm curious what advice you would have for beginners who want to get started in astrophotography, because obviously the, the solution isn't to just go out and buy a bunch of equipment. There's a lot of learning that has to take place here. First of all, find somebody that, that's already doing it so that you've got a, a mentor. But you can do a lot with just a regular a DSLR and a tripod. You don't have to have the you know all of the expensive equipment to start with. You can do some interesting skyscapes. Uh, of the Milky Way against uh, objects in the foreground, trees or old buildings or something like that. You can shoot the Milky Way, you know, wide field objects like that where you're looking at a huge swath of sky. And so tracking doesn't make a lot of difference uh, over just a few seconds that you would be exposing. So you can get started that way. Mm -hmm. And uh, the camera sees more than your eye does. So what you'll see if you take pictures of the Milky Way is you'll see a number of these deep sky objects embedded in the Milky Way that will come out in the photographs. 
And that's what got me hooked. Once I, uh, I had seen images of all of these nebulae in books as I was growing up. And then once I started doing some tripod shooting and I saw, Hey, there's, you know, there's the Orion nebula. There is, uh, the, uh, Triffid Nebula, there's the Lagoon Nebula, all these different nebulas that I had read about and seen in pictures were actually showing up in my um, Milky Way pictures. And that's kind of what really got me started into wanting to go deeper and get, get better equipment, get closer in on these objects. Oh, and what are some of your favorite objects to photograph? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Well, there's always the, the, you know, as in with any hobby, you've got the, the basics. Um, the, the, great, the great Orion Nebula is one that everybody loves. Uh, the Andromeda Galaxy is one that everybody loves. The Horsehead is one that everybody loves. I, I like going for um, uh, the more obscure galaxies. And uh, now I've gotten into uh, quasars, oh, wow. which basically look like a star. So there's really nothing much to look at unless you know what you're looking at. And it's the, it's the concept of, of the, you know, I'm shooting something that's eight and a half billion light years away. You know, that just blows me away. Yeah. So I like stuff like that, but I've also gotten into a, a friend of mine that uh, is from, from Kosovo. She's a uh, studying for a master's in planetary science out in California she and I have become sort of uh, project partners in astronomy, and uh, uh, we've done some talks together, some national uh, conference talks together and things like that. And uh, she is all into asteroids. And uh, matter of fact, she has an asteroid named for her. So when we became friends a couple of years ago, about three years ago, I started uh, trying to photograph the asteroid that was named for her. And uh, I was uh, successful at that. And then I got further into uh, asteroid photography, where uh, it turns out that, you know, asteroids are, are usually very small objects. They're, you know, anywhere from a thousand yards or so to a mile or two, in, uh, you know, several miles in diameter. So they're, they're, they're the, the runts of the solar system, so to speak. <laughs> they're planets that never came together pieces of planets that never came together. So they're small. And so they're, they're also, uh, they're not spherical. They're, um, they are uh, odd shaped. They might be shaped like a peanut or something like that. And as they fly through space around the sun, they rotate. And so there's some measurements that you can make by uh, measuring the brightness of an asteroid over time, extremely accurately by comparing its brightness to known stars that are in the background and you can develop what's called a light curve. And you can, you can tell uh, from this light curve how fast that object is rotating. So that fascinates me. And that's something that, that uh, my, my friend Pranvera and I have gotten into uh, lately. And my goal was to, to find the rotational rate of her asteroid. And I've gotten most of the way there, but not quite all the way. I haven't got a full light curve yet. I need some more exposure time. I need some more some more time, and it's out, it's out of view right now on the other side of the, 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 uh, the world. So you've gone from gazing at the stars as a child to getting your first telescope to now actually doing some real astronomy. Yeah, you can do real. An amateur like me can do real, can, can, can do real science. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's talk about things a little bit closer to home because one of the photographic subjects you've been doing here lately are rocket launches from the launch pad. How did you get started with that very specific niche? Of course, I've always 
always been interested in in space travel and exploration like say growing up in the 60s when when we were actually going to the moon and doing wonderful things uh so i've always been interested in that i always wanted to to work at nasa and i got sidelined into broadcasting but i don't regret that but i spent my career there but i would have loved to have been in some form working for nasa or some close subsidiary and uh working on these these projects but um so I've always, you know, anytime I could go to Florida, I always go go to Kennedy Space Center. So I was down there, I guess, back in uh, when the shuttle uh, was being uh, the last few shuttle missions. Uh, I went down there to see a shuttle launch, and um, uh, a friend of mine, and well, actually several friends of mine, we we went down there to see uh, uh, one of the the final shuttle launches because I said, if I don't go now, I won't get to see, see the shuttle because they've been going up for 30 years, you know? And, and, uh, so I was, I was disappointed that I really had never gone down there to, to, uh, to, to watch a shuttle launch. So I was sitting in uh, Titusville with my friends across the river and we watched uh, discovery launch on its last mission. And, uh, I got a phone call from a friend of mine who, uh, uh, was out at the Cape and, uh, uh, after the launch, he said, I, I need to go out and pick up my cameras at the launch site. And I thought, well, wait a minute. How did you get clearance to do that? And he said, well, I've got, uh, I'm, I'm shooting for Sky and Telescope magazine, and I've got uh, media credentials. And, and uh, he said, don't you work for uh, a television station? I said, yeah, I'm vice president of a network. You know, <laughs> He said, well, you can get, you can get uh, media credentials if you go through the process. And uh, I thought, you know, well, duh. So I did. I went through. Uh, we were coming up on the the last shuttle launch, and so I applied to uh, for media credentials through there, and they go through a, a a security check and all this sort of thing to make sure you're not a terrorist or something, because you're going to be out there on the on the pad with the with the rocket. And uh, so right before, uh, I guess two or three days before the launch, I finally got my credentials, and I headed to Florida. And um, you have to set up cameras usually the day before launch because once they start fueling a rocket uh you can't be there because it's just too dangerous so you have to set up cameras uh, a day or two before a rocket launches uh and the shuttle was no different if you've ever been to florida you know that it rains darn near every day so you've got to set up your camera in some sort of a weatherproof container you know that it's right next to the ocean so you have to you know, the humidity is terrible. So if there's a morning launch uh, or, or a night launch, uh, your lenses do up really quickly because of the humidity. And so you have to do things like put dew heaters uh, and timers and things like that to burn the humidity off the lens or the dew off the lens before the rocket launches. So it, it gets fairly complex because you're not going to be there with the camera. You're, this camera is right there with the rocket. And, uh, and so it has to work automated. So you have to build things like sound sensors to hear when the rocket engines ignite. And that's when it starts clicking off the shutter on the camera. If you're shooting video, you want to start the camera a minute or two before launch so that you can get the entire sequence. And if you're dealing with a night launch, you have to uh, put timed uh, dew heaters and things like that, where you turn on your dew heater, say an hour before launch and let it burn off the, uh, 
the uh, the humidity on the lens, and so you have to have battery packs and all this sort of stuff, and design all that. And so, to me, that's that's part of the interest of this is because I love building electronic stuff like timers and sound sensors and all that sort of thing. So it, it was a natural thing for me to 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 get into. Back in twenty, this was twenty eleven at the last shuttle launch, and I uh, I just got totally hooked on on shooting rocket launches at NASA, and uh, I've been to I don't know probably. 30 or 40 of them since and, and photograph those for uh, either sky and telescope magazine or a, uh, a website called americaspace.com. And, and these are incredible photos, by the way, they're very, very dramatic, but I, I tell you what, hearing you talk about it, it sounds like this is almost as difficult as uh, doing astrophotography. Well, it's, it's, it's more work <laughs> because you're, uh, you have to go out, like I say, the day before, and they have a window of time where they let photographers, uh, credentialed photographers on the, on the pads, and you have to get your work done really quickly. And when they say go, you got to go. So I generally try to put out at least two still cameras and, and at least two video cameras at each launch. And sometimes I'm successful and sometimes I'm, I'm not. Sometimes things don't work right and I end up with nothing. But for the most part, it's been very successful. And you have to keep those uh, cameras powered on, correct? Yeah, they have to, they, they have to be in the standby mode and, and, and waiting for a shutter click, basically. Mm. You have a, uh, a sound sensor that it, it's a homemade sound sensor that listens for the uh, the sound of the rocket engine starting, and at that point it starts clicking the shutter as fast as the shutter will go, and and it uh, clicks as many objects or as many images as it can before the rocket goes, uh, you know, out of sight. Basically, that's incredible. And one of the things that I found that uh, early on when I was shooting down there that the a lot of the guys, we would ride out to the sites together in buses and things like that. And so we would talk about lots of things. And one of the things that the other photographers were were wanting was some way to actually track the rocket as it went up. Because if you just set a camera there on a tripod, you're going to get the rocket on the pad. And when it leaves the pad, it flies up out of the the field of view. And so you've only got so many usable images. If you could somehow track that rocket on the way up, automatically without having to be there, that would be a cool thing. And so I thought, I got to thinking, I said, well, shoot, I deal with telescope mounts all the time. And so I bought a uh, cheap, what's called an alt-as telescope mount off of eBay. And a friend of mine and myself, he's into uh, microcontroller programming and that sort of thing. We got together and we bought an infrared sensor, again, off of eBay. And it could see the the heat of the rocket flame. And we wrote software to drive the mount so that it kept the rocket flame in the center of the of the image as it was going up. And we were able to actually build a tracking mount that worked fairly well. I think we might have had maybe a hundred bucks in the whole thing. And uh, I showed it to some of my some of the folks at the NASA News Center and uh, you know they were saying dang, you know, it took us a million dollars to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and and you know so it, it that that was kind of cool too. Well, Hap, you're you're definitely uh, the modern Renaissance man, and and I'm just amazed at all the 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 cool things you do involving photography. But it's like you're on a, a never ending quest for knowledge. I, I just love everything science. Uh, like I said, as a kid, I was I was 
reading everything I could get my hands on. I, I really like doing outreach to neighborhood kids and things like that. Matter of fact, I've got a Tesla coil out in the shop that, uh, oh, my wow. workshop that I show off to the kids around the neighborhood. And I've got, uh, all sorts of little magnets and different physics experiments and things like that, that I can show them. And, uh, trying to get the kids that, you know, interested in science, like, like I got interested in it. And, uh, that's, I think that's, that's the way to go. I mean, the kids nowadays are so interested in video games and, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, they need, need to get into reality and see some real things. And, you know, science is one of the, one, a good way of doing that. Well, I'd like to talk about one more thing. And, uh, this might be the coolest thing we talk about today, but, your work is actually going to the moon, and I would love for you to tell us a little bit about about this moon arc uh, project. Uh, well, I have a whole lot of uh, astronomical photography out on the web, and um, someone from uh, Carnegie Mellon University was was noticing it, and they uh, sent me an email saying that they were uh, participating in what was at the time the Lunar X Prize. They were uh, their robotics division at Carnegie Mellon was building a, uh, a lunar spacecraft to go to the moon and to um, deposit a lander on the surface of the moon. They would like for me to supply some images that would go in a time capsule of sorts and uh, uh, be dropped onto the surface of the moon. And, uh, of course, <laughs> I jumped at the opportunity and I asked, you know, what what would you like to see? What what type of pictures would 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 be proper for this? And they said that the uh, the point of their time capsule was to sort of document the relationship between uh, man and the moon over eons. And I said, well, how about if I took uh, as close as I could get images of the six Apollo landing sites? And uh, they thought that was a great idea. I uh, I did that and. Uh, they they took those images and etched them onto little platinum discs that uh, will go into the uh, time capsule of sorts. It's called the Moon Arc, and it'll be dropped on the moon when this lander lands. And as, as a matter of fact, NASA has picked them as being the uh, uh, the lander of choice for uh, taking equipment to the moon. And the first launch of one of their landers should be later this year or sometime next year. And so I'll be uh, real excited to be able to point to my to the moon with my grandkids and uh, you know say hey something that your granddad made is is there on the surface of the moon. Oh, it's absolutely incredible. And did you ever think that you would be doing that when you were a little child looking at the stars? Not at all. And I guess it's appropriate that my grandmother said that the fir my first word was moon, and now I'm actually going to have something on the surface of the moon that I made. So that's. It's, it's mind-blowing. You know, Hap, you're, you're such an inspiration, and I'm so glad you took the time to talk with us today and, and come on the show, and I can't thank you enough. Glad to be here. I'd like to thank Hap Griffin for being a guest on the show. I think I could talk to him for hours, and we didn't even get into things like post-processing images. Uh, that's a discussion for a future show, and I'll put links to his work and his camera modification service in the show notes. Folks, thanks for listening to this episode of Photo 365. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends. And if you're a photographer, I'd love to hear from you or see what you're working on. You can contact me at the show website, 
photo365podcast.com. Photo365 is my hobby, but if you find some value in what I'm doing here, you can support the show by sliding some virtual coffees my way at buymeacoffee.com slash photo365. Keep looking out for great images, keep shooting, and we'll see you next time.